Hold on to your hats, everybody. We're going to be getting into some heavy stuff, from uncovering big corporations drawing water in place where they had no valid paperwork to do so, to tens of thousands of years of groundwater disappearing in what feels like the blink of an eye. Our guest this week is one of a handful of investigative journalists in the United States who are really devoting their time to reporting on the environment. In the process, our guest has made some shocking discoveries and broken some huge stories. Some of those stories have a ripple effect that reaches far beyond his home base in Phoenix, Arizona. And we'll be finding out more about some of them in this episode. And next episode, because this is a two-parter. Future Jay here. It turns out my conversation with our guest was so good that we didn't have the heart to cut any of it out. So we're splitting this one into two different episodes. You can look out for the second part on February 16th. Stay tuned for part one of our interview. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's 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 let's, let's talk, talk, talk 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 about about, about, about water. 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 water 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 water. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Let's Talk About Water, a podcast by the Global Institute for Water Security and the Walrus Lab. Okay. Uh, here, my, my pages are getting mixed up. Okay. Ian James joins me for this episode of Let's Talk About Water. He's a reporter at the Arizona Republic newspaper in Phoenix. He reports on water, the environment, and climate change. Ian James joins me now over Skype from his office in Phoenix. Okay, so first of all, um, Ian, um, yeah, we were just chatting about uh, when we met, which was back in, in 2013. But before you came to California, you were working... Uh, as an investigative reporter, right, for the Associated Press in Venezuela. Is that correct? Hi, Future Jay here. Just a clarification. Before coming back to the U.S., Ian was actually the Venezuela bureau chief at the AP, not an investigative reporter. Correct. I was covering Venezuela, and I was there for eight years and reporting on international news. And then I met you shortly after I had arrived in California, where I was taking on a new beat and starting to focus on the environment and water. Um, that's a pretty big switch. So the Palm uh, Palm Desert for our listeners is in the greater Palm Springs area, the Co uh, Coachella Valley part of, uh, of California, where you're working at the Desert Sun. How did you wind up there? Well, it was just one of these situations where I knew that I was interested in doing in-depth reporting on the environment, and I looked around for opportunities to do that type of reporting, and that was where it turned out to be. I found a great team of journalists and a supportive environment to take on big projects, and we did. Yeah, it seems to have worked out quite well. Uh, looking at some of the epic series you've been able to work together, I've always thought maybe you can let me know if this is true. Part of it also is having the support of a great editorial team, and your you've been with your editor uh, Greg Burton for some for some time now. Could you talk about that a little bit about that relationship? Sure, it's terrific working with Greg. He has always supported in-depth journalism and is unafraid to take on big topics, complicated topics, and has always been supportive in terms of 
giving me and other journalists the time to do these big projects. I think that's really important, Ian. What started your, what turned your attention to water and groundwater? Well, I think I had read about some of the global research that you and other scientists had been doing. And at that time, I, it was also the middle of the California drought or the early years of the drought. And uh, so I was looking more at sort of this long-term issue of groundwater drawdown in various parts of the state of, you know, being exacerbated during that period of drought, but still a long-term problem. Um, and so I remember getting in touch with you to ask you about these trends and what the science showed as I was collecting data. And I found that really helpful. I remember um, thinking, and you know, I've come to know you over over the years quite quite well, and and you know, you, we've had a lot of chats about about various things, and um, you know, Ian, I think maybe our listeners might uh, appreciate this after they go back and maybe check some of the links and read some of your read some of your reporting. But I kind of think of you as a, a reporter who is. Uh, this is how I think of Ian James. He's a reporter who uh, wields his pen like a dagger, but has the face of a Boy Scout. So, <laughs> I just thought I would share that with you. Okay. Uh, so, as I said a little bit earlier, um, in the time that I've known you, you've had a couple of epic series, the USA Today series on global groundwater and the more recent Arizona Republic series also on groundwater. Um, so, we will make some of those links available um, uh, through Twitter and, and on our Facebook page. Uh, but but our listeners are really encouraged to go and find uh, find those stories. But there was also the Nestle Waters North America story that that came out that I'd like to uh, uh, chat with you about. Can you can you talk about what you found there and what's the what's the backstory there? Sure, that story actually started with a tip that I received from some people in the area of San Bernardino National Forest where Nestle has for a number of years been taking water for bottling, which is used uh, to produce Arrowhead brand bottled water. And the tip that I got was that they're using a permit that lists 1988 as the expiration date. And so I started looking into it and found that was in fact the case. And that was one of the central details in a 2015 investigation that we published on how this bottled water company has been taking water from the national forest, paying a, a small fee for a permit, and basically there's been no examination of the effects on the environment from taking that water. And so that reporting led to a lawsuit by environmental groups, there were protests, and the Forest Service began a review of this permit and eventually has now issued a new permit. Uh, so Nestle is continuing to use water from the national forest there. So Nestle is continuing to take water from this national forest. The water comes out of boreholes in the mountainside and enters a network of pipes where it goes downhill through the forest and is trucked to a bottling plant. So that um, is is pretty amazing. 
Um, I remember, so I was living there at the time, and you and I were talking about this, and it was, uh, you know, sparked protests um, in L.A. I mean, this, first of all, um, is something that Nestle does, right? I mean, Nestle, so we're talking about Nestle Waters North America, but there's been numerous stories. I've got one in, in my queue of things to read uh, about some of its global practices. And so the issue in California that really rubbed people the wrong way was, of course, this epic drought. Um you know, everyone is struggling to conserve water, and here you have company at the, uh, a big company at that time taking water from a national forest that would have otherwise been available to the general public, bottling it and then selling it, basically effectively selling it back to us at a at a higher price. So, uh, what's happened since since then? Has anything happened since then that you know about? So, California water regulators have also investigated Nestle's claims of water rights, and that has yet to come to a, a final conclusion, although the state water regulators have said they don't believe Nestle is entitled to all of the water that it says it is. Mm. And so there's some disagreement there. Nestle has said they are entitled to continue using that water, and they've been, uh, they and their predecessor companies have been using that water for a long time and have proper rights to continue taking the water. But there are some disagreements there. And uh, there are people who've been protesting against the taking of water from the National Forest who say they would like to see it end. Yeah, I certainly understand that. Um, I think there's a bigger issue here, which is one of corporate responsibility and corporate stewardship and and doing things that uh, your customer base actually wants and doing things that are right for the environment at the at the right time. So I just want to refresh your memory. I know that you probably haven't forgotten that in my experience, um, so triggered by your stories, I ended up um, doing an interview, a radio interview at KPCC in Pasadena um, with Tim Brown, who was the CEO of Nestle Waters North America at that time. And in the conversation, um, I, I asked him, first of all, I, I sort of set him up in a positive way by saying, hey, you know, some of these big companies like Starbucks, for example, are deciding not to bottle water in California during the drought, and they're, they're moving to other parts of the world or other parts of the country that have more water, and it's not, not as big a deal to be bottling water. And I said, does Nestle have any plans to stop bottling? Uh, in um, in the national forest during the during the drought, and he said absolutely not. And and if we could, we'd bottle even more water. And I remember looking around the radio studio at that time and seeing all the whole production team. Like it was, I mean, radio studios are always quiet, but I mean, it was deadly silent. People's mouths were open, practically hitting the floor. And uh, the host of the show was Larry Mantle's air talk show, and I think. Larry was stunned, and we knew that that was an epic moment that ultimately, so the 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 social media backlash on that was off the roof. And then Tim was uh, ultimately dismissed. Future Jay here again, just a clarification on this. Tim stepped down. There's no public evidence he was dismissed. So there is a bigger issue of uh, corporate responsibility, but um, I think together, um, you and I there in that particular case may have had more of an impact than I ever really thought about in, in terms of a change of leadership. Um, so uh, we should team up more often. Um, I'd be okay. very interested in doing that. I'm, yeah, I'm curious uh, to know your ahead. thoughts about 
the, the bottled water industry and some of the other developments because this case in Southern California is really one small example. It happens to be in a national forest, but there are so many other places across the country where Nestle and other bottled water companies take water and there can often be a debate about especially the cost, you know, how much are they going to be charged for this water, if at all? Um, so I, of course, I'm not a big, a big fan of, of bottled water. I mean, there are some times when you're glad you have it. I'm about to travel to Bangladesh. I'm afraid of the water sources there. I can imagine that I'll be be drinking a fair amount of bottled water. But, you know, sometimes you're doing that blindly, assuming that that water is a better quality than might otherwise be available. But but that aside, it's a huge problem. As we as we both know, I think we're on the same page that uh, uh, this is uh, a public resource. We have accessibility problems all over the world, and yet we're allowing uh, corporate America to uh, access this water at a, at an incredibly cheap price, sometimes free. Bottle it up and sell it. Sell it back to us. Uh, I think it's a problem. I think it's a huge problem, um, and we know that the public, uh, big chunks of the public, are against it. On the other hand, big chunks of the public actually go and, and buy this water, right? And so we're partly to blame. And there's a big demand for bottled water. Um, so I think we have to come to terms with that and and educating people about. Um, um, that in many in many cases, at least in the United States and Canada, in many cases, uh, the quality of the tap water is as good or better than the uh, water that you're going to be getting uh, out of a bottle. So um, we have we have some issues that we have to work through. But but I I hear you. It's a it's a big problem, and one I'd like to talk to you about um, a lot more. Uh, but I would like to shift gears now and talk about some of these big series that you have written about. Um, and let's start with the USA Today series on, on global groundwater uh, depletion. Can you tell us what that was, was all about and, and uh, maybe if you found any shocking things? I know you did some, some touring around the world uh, writing that series. Yeah, I got started when I was reporting on the California drought for the Desert Sun and, and realizing in talking with you and, and other experts and people in the state that it's a long-term problem. The drought was making it worse at that time, but over the decades in California's Central Valley, for instance, the groundwater levels just continue to go down, almost like a stair step through wet and dry periods. and. So I was interested in looking at this issue across the country, across the US, and also globally. And so we proposed this project. I teamed up with colleagues at USA Today, and we looked at data nationwide for wells. And when we looked at wells all across the country in the United States, we found water levels falling in nearly two-thirds of those wells. And the average decline among these wells was more than 10 feet, but in some areas it was significantly more, more than 100 feet in places. And so we zeroed in on some of the areas where groundwater was being depleted most rapidly. And we did a story in Kansas looking at the Ogallala Aquifer and the farmers there who are struggling with the long-term reality that they are pumping that aquifer to levels at which they'll no longer be able 
to farm the same crops they're growing uh, in some areas. And we did stories in the California wine country that focused on people who had seen their wells go dry because a lot of new vineyards had started pumping water from wells and the water levels were declining. And that's what we found in the United States. Then there were also three international stories that we did as part of that project in India, Morocco, and Peru. Um, you know, Ian, one of the things that, that, that you just mentioned um, about your story in Kansas and farming and be the inability to, to farm different crops. I think people sometimes lose sight of the disconnect. They've sort of forgotten about the connection between water and, and food. So as we're talking about groundwater depletion in, in these regions that you just talked about in California and uh, and in the Southern High Plains Aquifer, uh, not only is our water security at risk, but our food security is at risk uh, as well. Uh, but tell me about some of this international, some of these international stories. For example, what did you find in Peru? In Peru, there are a lot of large farms, uh, particularly in the Ica area, that have set up these big operations. They're relying on groundwater in a desert region. And a lot of these crops are grown for export. So there's asparagus, there are blueberries, and there are flowers and other crops like that. It's a very lucrative business, but it's created some conflicts between local small farmers who have seen their water levels drop and these big export operations. And so that's what we focused on. And actually when we were there, there happened to be a protest where some of these small farmers um, had been opposing a large farm running pipes through their area and it burned some of the pipes and it, it actually uh, devolved into a violent incident while we were there. That's that's tragic. And I think that's uh, another example. So we always talk about, especially in the water scarcity area, about uh, the potential for water scarcity to, to drive conflict. And one of the things that, as, of course, we know this has been happening throughout right, the history of, of humanity. But one of the things that I've uh, experienced myself, and it sounds like you just have too, is that those sort of sometimes smaller scale conflicts uh, don't get national or international attention. And they're happening all the time. And a lot of, you know, you were there, so you knew about it. But, you know, I never heard about it until right now. And, and you and I, you know, for a while, we're talking all the time. Right. So that's a little that's a little scary. Sorry, go ahead. Right, and I have seen that that the Pacific Institute keeps a, a regular tally of water related conflicts globally, and that those numbers have been rising over the years. This is one example of one of those conflicts. We were riding in a car with one of the protest leaders, and then we came upon a group of thugs who were apparently security guards for one of these farming companies. And they ended up punching this woman who was in the back seat of this of the car that we were in. And fortunately, after that, we made it out of there. She wasn't uh, seriously hurt, but it was certainly a scare. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Um, so you know, glad that that she was okay. And, and it's really scary to think about um, that this is happening, and it's it's happening um, all over the world. So thank you for you know as 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 sad as and unfortunate as that story is. Thank you for uh, for sharing that uh, with us. Hey, listeners, that's all for this episode. 
But that's not all you'll be hearing from Ian James. Next time on Let's Talk About Water, we're digging into his six-part investigative series in Arizona and the Trump administration. So they're basically rolling back a, a rule that was adopted during the Obama administration that expanded federal authority over ephemeral streams that flow part of the year. What they're basically doing now is stepping back and pulling that regulation back and saying, no, we aren't going to have federal regulation over ephemeral streams, the streams that flow during part of the year and are dry during other parts of the year. Of course, for Arizona and for the desert southwest, that is the vast majority of streams and desert washes, uh, springs, and that means it's easier for construction to happen on desert wash areas and it also may be easier for pollution to end up in the water without there being checks on that. Coming up next episode, we also have some great audio that Ian's team at the Arizona Republic was so gracious to share with us. You won't want to miss it. That's all coming up February 16th. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About Water. It's a podcast dedicated to the future of water and why you should care. It's a collaboration between the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan and the Walrus Lab. I want to give a big thanks to all of our new listeners. The podcast has been growing a lot in the past few weeks, and it's thanks to everyone who's been spreading the word. We've seen some great Apple podcast reviews, and we're watching for any feedback you want to throw our way. There are so many ways to do that on Facebook, facebook.com backslash L-T-A-W podcast, or on Twitter and Instagram, type in Let's Talk Water. You can even do it the old-fashioned way. Email us at water.talk at usask.ca. We'll be throwing up a link to that documentary that Ian mentioned on our pages. It's called Pumped Dry. By the way, yours truly appears in it. If you have an hour to spare, it is great to watch, and it really gives you some insight into what Ian and I do for a living. I'd like to thank the people who put this podcast together, Mark Ferguson, Chelsea Laskowski, Amy Hergott, Laura McFarlane, Jesse Widow, and Morgan Broughton.